I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, historian Philip W. Blood joins us to discuss his book, Birds of Prey, Hitler's Luftwaffe, Ordinary Soldiers, and the Holocaust in Poland. Said book offers a micro-history of Nazi activities in the Beloviesia Forest, of Poland. As Dr. Blood will explain, this primeval forest was turned into a killing field by the Third Reich. This story, Dr. Blood argues, has far-reaching implications for how we understand both German security warfare in World War II and the Holocaust. In addition to all of this, Dr. Blood and I will also discuss how German tactics and strategies were later utilized by the U.S. in Korea and Vietnam. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now, on to the conversation with Dr. Philip W. Blood, author of Birds of Prey. Hitler's Luftwaffe, Ordinary Soldiers, and the Holocaust in Poland. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest I'm really, really excited to be speaking with. He's an independent historian and the author of the book Birds of Prey, Hitler's Luftwaffe, Ordinary Soldiers and the Holocaust in Poland. I'm holding the book right here for the video version of this interview. And we're speaking with Dr. Philip W. Blood. How are you doing today? 
Very well, JG. Great to be on your show. I've actually looked forward to this for a long time because I, <laughs> I, 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 I just enjoy your programs. I mean, while I was ill with COVID over Christmas, I was listening to them and they kept me alive. So, yeah, really looking forward to this. So, uh, Dr. Blood, if you could, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about your background. Birds of Prey is actually your second book dealing with uh, Nazi Germany and 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 um, Hitler's regime. The first book is Hitler's Bandit Hunters, the SS and the Nazi Occupation of Europe. Uh, so I guess the first question I have is, how did you get into this field of study? Um, <clears throat> well, originally in the 90s, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd had an earlier career in the city of London where I was involved in finance and what have you. And I, I, I gave that up and decided I, at the age of 35, I wanted to be an academic. And I originally started with looking at SS personalities um, at London University. And that then led to me joining um, another professor at the University of uh, Cranfield um, to study what we thought then was standard German counterinsurgency, the idea that somehow the Germans in occupied Russia were fighting a counterinsurgency war. Um, my research led me into various um, avenues. First of all, I went down the route of looking at the history of counterinsurgency within the German military history, which took me back to 1800s. And then I discovered how much effort there had been in um, colonial warfare, where counterinsurgency was used um, as a more of aggressive policy towards rapid colonialization, especially in Namibia. And then I discovered at the end of the First World War, methods that had been used in the colonies were used in Munich at the end of the war when you had the Rata Republic, the Red Republic, and the uprisings um, in German cities due to the collapse of the, ab and the um, abolition of the monarchy. And that then flowed into studying um, the German army in the 20s and 30s and how they used counterinsurgency for political purposes. And of course, um, once Hitler came to power, the army was behind um, the SS operations against Ernst Röhm in 1934. And then, of course... If people are unfamiliar, who with Ernst Röhm? And maybe you could talk... Ernst Röhm was, Hitler, was Hitler's uh, Sturmabteilung, the stormtrooper leader, who, um, for his sins, was uh, a former First World War trench officer who'd built a reputation of, of creating bodyguards. Um, a, a lot of the story about him has been that he was a homosexual and that he was offended, offending to um, the Nazi leadership. He was actually pushing the idea of having a Nazi army and uh, Himmler and Goering got together and had him removed. And the, and the main henchmen in that were the SS and the police. But the army behind was involved supplying trucks, and, and it was quite a well-organised move in Berlin and Munich and other German cities. So I then continued with the research and went into, obviously, the Second World War, where the, the German army creates 
various forms of um, security policies to run occupation in different countries. And, and it was during that period of looking at various policies that I found a policy uh, um, pamphlet called Bandenby Kempfong. And it was from that moment the whole of the research suddenly changed. Um, instead of having an ordinary counterinsurgency policy, what you actually had was this idea of hunting partisans or any form of resistance, and it was to be led by the SS. And, of course, we're now in the 80th anniversary of that policy and that doctrine. Um, when I first started, uh, I have to say to many academics, especially <laughs> colleagues from America, uh, couldn't believe that I could focus on a word. And so it became a bit of a debating point. And the more I dug down, the more I discovered that Bandenbekampfung was becoming uh, institutionalised within the Wehrmacht thinking. And so my PhD was called Bandenbekampfung. Um, my publishers, Hitler's, who, who published Hitler's Bandit Hunters, refused to have a German word on the cover. So, <laughs> so we had to have Hitler's Bandit Hunters. Uh, so it was, that was PhD to the first book. Um, and I think the book was published in 2006. Uh, initially, it, it, there was not a lot of interest, uh, even though we were in the age of the counterinsurgency war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and then it was promoted by um, the American Historical Review, uh, Historical Association Review, and suddenly, suddenly picked up. Um, and I found myself uh, discussing more and more Bandamikanfung. And eventually the word kind of took hold and more and more academics started to use it. And it's now pretty much a standard fare for this thing called... Ger I, I, I actually call not German counterinsurgency, but security warfare. The idea of committing to military operations for the sole purpose of security. Uh, and, and that's really the background to my research. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, um, since we had mentioned Rome, I, I think we should have mentioned uh, probably, or I should have mentioned, so Rome was one of the victims in the, the Night of the Long Knives. You know, that's when, the one, when, yes. When the, uh, basically his people were taken out by the SS, and it's an example of how brutal the Nazis were. Uh, they, they would take out any rivals, it seems like. So... With regards the, the to interesting, the interesting thing about that night that very few people know is um, the the man who would become the boss of Bandemikampfung operations, a, guy, a chap called Eric von den Baxelevsky, he actually killed two people who were his rivals. One was um, one of Germany's foremost um, um, horse jumpers, you know, these show jumpers. And he'd been um, an Olympic champion. And that didn't stop Baxileski having him killed. Um, so they, it wasn't just taking out your, your natural political rivals. It was taking out your career rivals and actually anybody who managed to get in the way. So you've got even German officers like Schleicher um, were taken out uh, and murdered. It was the killing moment. So then with regards to Hitler's bandit hunters, but before we get into Birds of Prey, what would you how would you describe the the thesis of Hitler's Bandit Hunters for people that are unfamiliar with that book? 
Well, it's it's how it's how German security warfare, <clears throat> as I say, committing military troops to security actions for political purposes. Now that might sound a little bit like Clausewitz, you know, war by other means. It's not, because what you're actually using is military military power to take control. So you're not you're not putting in logistical operations and massive support units and and the whole mili- what you're doing is similar to what's happening in the Ukraine with uh, Putin. You're using small shadow forces to commit to large scale operations against weaker forces and hitting them in a number of places. So in Namibia you had small numbers of German soldiers who had fought literally to destroy the the Herero population. Similarly, the German soldiers in the conservative right who were in Munich in 1919, they took out Munich and the communists who'd taken control. And those, those ideas then found their way, funnily enough, all the way to Warsaw in 1944, when Baksalewski tried to destroy Warsaw and the Polish resistance. So you can see a connection between the Warteborg when the the, uh, Herero population was destroyed in 1904 to what happens in Munich in 1919 to what happens in the Polish and Russian forests in um, 1942, 43, 44, and then the destruction of Warsaw. And and it doesn't actually stop there because um, one aspect of all this research was all of that knowledge ended up being studied by the Department of Defense in America. For Vietnam? Uh, For Korea and Vietnam. Okay. So what what are the components that make up this kind of security warfare? Like what, what are the bullet points you would give to a lay audience that may be out of the loop with some of this? Okay, so you're looking at heavily armed policemen operating with tanks, but they're not going in with massive supply that you would expect um, from an unarmored division or a panzer division operating on the Eastern Front in 1944. What you have is tanks coming in with police, with SS cavalry, with SS infantrymen. And what they do is the the basic procedure is to... um, encircled the opponents. Once they've discovered and identified the positions, and German intelligence was quite good at this because they would quickly identify where uh, the, the Russians were occupied, the Soviet partisans were occupying, and they would encircle them. And then anything that was in that bag, they destroyed. So women, children, you know, they, it was massive, extensive killing. Um, sometimes, and it happened a few times, um, they would literally raise the ground and then salt it. So your, the, the, the points that you would be looking at from the way this process works is not that the Germans are trying to uh, disarm a, a, an, in, an insurgent. What they're actually trying to do is to exterminate any form of resistance anyone suspicious of resistance and anybody for supporting resistance. In other words, like a, almost like a scorched earth approach. Total scorched earth, but against the population. So you're actually scorch earthing the people and everything goes. You, they actually burn all the villages. Um, 
extensive burning, and then what they'll they'll. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. You'd think that the German army is short of food. They'll kill the cows. They'll destroy everything. If they can't move it, they'll destroy it. Um, there's a Russian film, which you may or may not have heard of, uh, called Come and See, which is really kind of this violent, um, the, the reality of the politics of violence. And and uh, in, uh, on the Eastern Front in 1942-44, and Watching that at the time when I was w working on my research was very influential because it gave me an idea of the madness. Because the only way you could I, you could initially look at and understand what the SS and the Nazis were trying to do was in this kind of vague madness. Okay, you can say that's German, that's Nazi Holocaust, that's Nazi genocide. You can see all of that, but it, once you actually get into the workings, there, there's a madness there. It, it, you, you couldn't believe that they could go to such detail to destroy so much. It was like, um, um, it's hard to describe really um, <clears throat> in, in words without actually going for all the numbers, but they, they would actually count as a body count down to children, animals, bullets um and then destroyed all so they'd captured all of this stuff all these people all of this content and and if they couldn't carry it back they would just dispose of it and burn it and put flamethrowers to it and it went to extraordinary efforts to get to the russians including building wooden railways um to move the troops faster through the forests so they literally chopped down a tree split the wood and have trucks going up and down on wood railway lines. Um, they would go in with supplies of water to sustain operations um, because they found themselves in thick swamps and mud. And you're thinking, well, they're committing here nearly half a million troops to this kind of activity um, for no other purpose than creating, as you say, scorched earth and mass destruction. So yeah, it isn't isn't the word that's often used to describe what you're talking about. I mean, it, it sounds like total war, you know, this idea of total war where you just you're basically disregarding all the, you know, uh, roles of war and saying, you know, we'll, we'll go after even civilians. Well, th that that's the point. And you see, you, you're living in a you would be living in an environment where in every city like Minsk, there would be a ghetto for the Jews. But while there's a ghetto for the Jews who were starving, the, the local people were also starving. And on top of that, the Germans are saying to themselves, well, as, as Goering said quite often, or a few times, um, the Russians are now eating each other in the prisoner of war camps. And there was there was a sense that it was it was a jolly. This was all rather funny. And it, to add to the madness, you just when you think they can't go any crazier, um, they've conducted a security operation, and then they go and take a week off to go hunting. Like, okay, <laughs> you, uh, and and that, of course, once all of that information started to come back to me that they were doing this 
hunting and then hunting human beings, hunting animals, and actually giving better rights and and um, recognition to animals over human beings, that I suddenly saw that there was this, uh, this incredible thread that that what was binding them, these guys together was the honour code of the hunt more than the honour code of the SS and the German army. That's actually yeah. a very... That, that's a very good segue because I was going to ask you, uh, a lot of your book deals with, I would say, and I'm talking about birds of prey here, like the ideology of the hunt, the sacred hunt. So what what is that ideology for people that may be unfamiliar? Well, um, what I noticed around about 1848 was that... Um, the German hunt codes, the German, and that's, and what we're talking about here is people who go wild game shooting or uh, mostly shooting. So you things like deer, stag, um, wolves, fox, the, the, those kind of animals. Around about 1848, there was a change in German attitudes, and you saw this uh, beginning of what I would call um, a social order of the hunt. And it started to create a culture amongst the middle class, the upper middle class, middle class to the aristocracy of where you would have um, a culture based upon almost in the moment how you recognize people. So you'd say things like Weidmantar, which is the hunter's hello, um, to the Weidmann's dank, which is the hunter's thank you. And they'd, they'd, they'd have honor codes, uniform codes, social codes, well, that continued right the way through the, the First World War when German soldiers, including men like Richthofen, the, the famous fighter pilot, would, would suddenly go for a weekend and go shooting animals like he'd been shooting British pilots down for a week. Now he'd go off and shoot some animals. And after the First World War, many of the German hunting grounds were lost because they went back to France or Poland during the reparations of the, after the Versailles Treaty of 1919. So when the Germans got their hunting grounds back, it coincided with with um, a new code of hunting that Hitler uh, Goering had imposed on the German hunt in 1934. Now, when I first read this stuff, I thought, well, you know, it's what hunters do. They pick up a gun, they go and shoot an, an animal from 250 paces. There's nothing really about that. But once I delved into the culture and realised that the, the that Hitler's per, uh, Goering's personal hunter had created a code which was based on utter rubbish, myth, make believe, and he'd taken the uh, the Golden Bow, the the famous book about anthropology, and literally twisted it that the German hunter had been around since the dawn of time. And they were this and they were, you know, they were capable of this, that and the other. And he put a code to it with a social order. And that social order was taken on board by the Luftwaffe and German forestry, which were the two sides of Goering's power, his main manpower power bases, forestry, which included the hunt and the Luftwaffe. And to bind them together, they used the etiquette of the hunt to regulate social order within the two organizations and there were honor courts and the honor courts were more important in many respects to the military court martial so you would have fights 
arguments as there were in Norway in 1940, where um, when the Germans invaded, the Stuka pilots didn't turn up, the paratroopers did turn up. There's a big argument between them. So they had to have an honor court between the, the Stuka pilots and the, and the um, paratroopers. And this was very common. And that's how Goering ran his idea of we're all knights. So many of the Luftwaffe pilots came out of the Second World War saying, well, we're the knights of the air. They were not lying. They'd been led to believe this culture uh, and accept the culture. Could you talk uh, a little bit more about what what is the mythology of the hunt? I know you mentioned it briefly, the golden bow and, and sort of inverting that, but maybe just to delve into it more deeply. Well, for it, it it's quite a it, how would I put it? You're regulated by the by the dog that you keep, you're regulated by the laws that you abide by, you're regulated by the state you live in, you're regulated by the the, the, the hunting method. So if you, for example, Freyvert would say, if you kill a stag, you have to lay it out on the ground, put leaves on pits of its body. Then you stand for an hour and you say, well, Adolf Hitler has made me great and I'm now the greatest hunter in the world. Thank you very much, Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists and all the rest of it. And you go for all these prayers and sermons to, to the animal. Then you gut the animal and you take it off and you stack it with all the other guys' animals and you lay them out like a regiment of dead animals. Okay. And if you'd have gone back 50 years before, most German hunters would say, what on earth is that? And what he had done, what Fravert had done, had created this idea of the regimentation of death of wild animals to give them honour and an honour code within the Third Reich within Hitler's Third Reich, which is remarkable because Hitler was not only a vegetarian, but he hated hunting. So you've got this <laughs> wild dichotomy of, of the hunters praising Hitler, who was anti-hunt. If you read Hitler's, some of his lunchtime discussions, he's talking about things like the obscenity of the Hunt Museum in Munich, because he thinks it's crazy. Now, if you went back and read some of Hitler's, uh, some of the books about Hitler, one of the things you note, one of the things that turned up that I found very interesting was in the First World War, he was forced to go on a boar hunt. Well, boar hunts are not funny. If you've not got a weapon, one of those things running at you can do serious damage, if not kill you. And I don't think... Adolf Hitler was very happy at running around the French forest for his um, colonel to hunt a boar. And he wasn't going to eat it anyway because he was a vegetarian. So he was totally anti the process. Now, Goering, on the other hand, thought hunting was brilliant. And von Eppenstein, his, his godfather, had taught him to hunt. Now, the remarkable thing about Goering the person well-known for introducing the, the final solution and being virulently anti-Semitic, is that his godfather was Jewish. And he carried on all the, all the, all the ways and means of life that his godfather had introduced to him as a child. 
And then he imposed these the ideas of, of, of some kind of medieval hunt on Freyvert, and Freyvert produced this code, um, as I say, took content from the Golden Bow to tell the story of um, a German hunt and a culture of a German hunt which never existed. And remarkably, to this day, the same book of, and code is still being used by German hunters. I mean, okay, they don't say, thank you very much, Adolf Hitler, for killing the stag, um, but they do go through the same process. So then how much of this code of the hunt, this culture of the hunt, how much of it, I could see some people reading the book and saying, so is Philip saying that this is prerequisite, this this code and this culture for the atrocities that are committed by the Nazis in that era? Like, is that a misinterpretation or how how central is this to the violence? Well, it's very central um, because... Um, <clears throat> what actually happens is the Walter Freybert, who's created the code for, for Goering, which then Goering introduces to the full, fullest extent. And not only is this court, court etiquette taken for the Luftwaffe, it's also taken by Himmler and the SS. So all of these guys join in and all the Wehrmacht. So all the top generals are also involved in this. And, you know, if you look at memoirs of Rommel, Rommel's running around the desert shooting leopards. And people don't, people, people overlook the fact that they're all doing this. And even during the invasion of Russia, the, the generals are nipping off for a weekend to go and shoot animals. And they're in a forest. <laughs> the wolf's lair where, where Hitler's headquarters are is in the middle of a forest where they go off hunting. So, you know, it, so you, you, you see that this is, was already emerging before the war has started. Now, when they go to war, Freyvert is given command of a forest area that he is to secure. Now, it just so happens that what's actually happened, so what, what's actually happened is several things have all come together at the same time. The first is, the German forest, this Polish forest has been decided to become the new Germania forest, the kind of forest that the Romans had written about under Tacitus as these great German forests where these wild men came out and, you know, destroyed Varus's legions and all of that stuff. So they've created, they've decided in their minds to create a Germanic forest in, in this Polish, from this Polish forest. This is Baloyesia, right? Baloyesia in Poland, yeah. It's famous because it had the last European bison roaming the, the grounds. So, so they came to the conclusion that they would have bison, they would have a very famous German zoologist called Lutz Heck, who was recreating the uh, aurochs by backbreeding. So you would have these wild animals coming into this forest, and this was already pre-thought about in, in 1938 during um, a massive hit, uh, hunting conference. So the plans were already there long before the war. Come to the war, the forest is now under control in 1941, so Goering gets his hunters, including Fravor, to go to the forest, 
And the first thing he asks them to do is to remove the Jews. And they kill about 300 Jews. It's the community of Narav Kamala. And they also clear out Jews from other communities. Um, on the 5th of August, 1941, they dig a pit, fill it with Jewish men. The Jewish women and children are taken to a concentration camp in Pretzmil. And then the area is, quote, cleansed. Come the next year, the Soviet partisans have been breaching the forest. So Goering orders Freyvert, his hunter, to put together a battalion of men. And his idea is that Freyvert will teach them how to hunt. So <laughs> what he does is he actually gets these, these soldiers to learn to hunt in the way the German hunt exists. And then he sends them out onto patrols and hunting missions. So the hunt is not so much guiding the killing because the killing's already been determined. And Beovisha is one of the first um, Jew-free forest areas in the East after the Germans have invaded um, Soviet Union. But what the hunt is doing is facilitating the killing. It's it's heightening it. It's giving it. Um, if you like, if they kill and if they kill a Jew, that's like killing a vermin, which is cleaning the forest. Yeah, and so they treat it that way. And when when new troops come in, they might well have only been out, straight out of the depot a week and they've already killed somebody, and they write it in the report. The emaciated female refused to come with us, so we finished her off. So they they essentially turn these forests into, they're like killing fields. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and they go to incredible efforts to kill people. Um, there was one where they found 25 people in a, in a forest area, and they literally went for them. Um, in another case, I, we could actually track, by using the mapping systems, we were able to track one of the soldiers who was on a patrol of three. He was a corporal. He came out of his barracks area, walked down the street. As he looked across the field, he could see from 50 metres away several Jews running across the forest, uh, towards the forest. So there was like an open area, and he was, and he could see them against the trees. And he picked up his rifle and fired and several killed several. And then within six hours, they conducted a massive search. They found the bunker where the Jews had been hiding. They threw a grenade into the bunker. Um, there was a Jewish boy of 17 in there. He was still alive. They tortured him to discover that there were more people in the area. They waited. Those people came back and they killed them. So... Um, it, yes, it is. It's a slaughterhouse. This is actually a good segue into something I wanted to ask you about. And I know it's kind of in, it's in the weeds and I know you only mention her once in the book, but I was wondering about the, if, if she had any influence on your work and how you would compare your work to her work. I, I wanted to ask you about Barbara Ehrenreich and, uh, her book, I believe it was called Blood Rights, Origins and History of the Passions of War. Um, how would you compare and contrast uh, your work 
uh, with Birds of Prey to her work looking at the passions of war and, you know, what attracts human beings to war? Well, I I actually like the book very much. Um, I think she has a very interesting approach, which is to look at the way uh, hunting has influenced not only war, but also military history in the way that people have written the books. It, uh, people didn't pick up that so much when she the way she wrote it, but she was actually saying in the historiography, there is a language of the hunt on top of actual hunting. And, and I found that very interesting because if you look at the way some of the Nazis explained what they were doing, it was almost like they were explaining a hunt. And if you read some of Adolf Galland's combat reports or supposed combat reports, he, he mentions the way he hunts down the enemy, almost the language of the hunt. And so she, Barbara's book is, for me, it gave me a platform to think about why I was in a different world from what she was in. So, yes, I agreed with what she was saying, but I was in a very different place. First of all, the hunt that I was dealing with was um, made up by the Nazis in the 1930s. Secondly, the mission was not so much military as it was ideological. And yet the soldiers who were doing this were under training. They were, if you like, being blooded in the nature of killing. And the fact that you had so many young soldiers coming through the process who had yet st still not seen combat, who were put into a position where they were killing innocent people or defenseless people before they actually went into combat, put them in a very strange place. And that could not be compared with anybody that I'd come across, apart from colonial history. You know, I, I talked about Namibia. In Namibia, the German soldiers hunted the Herero in, um, natives after they broke and literally hunted down, them down and killed them almost like wild game. And the same situation occurs um, in the forest with these uh, Luftwaffe troops. They will hunt people down with incredible aggression. And that's not the same kind of hunting that Barbara Ehrenreich was talking about. The, the, you know, there was an honour code. Here, there's no honour code. They're just hunting to kill. And that could be Soviet partisans, Jews, Poles, Belarusians. So then I guess the question people have is, how do ordinary soldiers uh, get turned into these cold-blooded killers? And I know there's a lot that goes into that. I know you talk about this idea of uh, the confrontation with death. But what, what's the process for sort of initiating these soldiers into this code of the hunt? Well, I think it. I think you really only see it when you get down to one-to-one -one level. And it happens, it happened for me when I started to look at how the companies were being formed. So you've you've got a company of troops who could be Luftwaffe men who've come straight into the service or have been redirected from the technical branches. They've been given guns and, and their sole purpose is you will learn to do this for three months and then you'll get sent to another unit, a combat unit or a field division or whatever. 
Now, in that company, there were leaders who were fighters and there were commanders who were controllers. And it's and it became very clear to me very early on that the controlling officers would manipulate certain troops to go with certain junior NCOs who were known killers. And there was one who was particularly aggressive who led many of the operations until he was finally killed. Um, and it was to take those young men into the fight. And it was very interesting. Where you would have thought there was caution and that the troops would fight in a, you know, behind, behind trees, ambush and move. These men didn't. They fought brazenly and they went into, even though it's only a small unit, maybe 40 men, they would try to encircle a village, um, not so much a village, a hamlet, maybe four or five houses. They would try and fire, uh, create an encirclement so you could enfilade the area and shoot from all different directions if anybody tried to break out. Um, and they would attack. And I was astonished. Because you would have thought the German soldiers were these careful beings who fought very aggressively, but very carefully. Instead, they were very aggressive. And when I started to look at the warrant officers and the senior sergeants who were putting these guys together and running them, they were not soldiers who you would have thought were cowardly in any way whatsoever. And, um, and you see them in the fighting retreat on the way back. It's the sergeants and the warrant officers who hold the troops together. And they fight incredibly hard. So going in step with these, with these military operations, you could see that although that they were only thinly trained, probably only had six weeks training in the first place, they were given a gun, they went out with a troop leader who was fairly aggressive and up close, possibly when they'd captured partisans or when they surrounded some um, Jews or Poles or whoever the, the target was, and they were given the opportunity to kill. Now, the thing here is nobody's going to court-martial them for killing. So there's no law for being a trigger puller. Well, if you're in a position where there's no law and there's no rules, that's very interesting. And I started to, to, to try and see how, how that was affecting soldiers. I was thinking, well, if they're under pressure to kill, there must be incidences where there's suicides or at least self-inflicted wounds. Well, there was one self-inflicted wound and one suicide. And the suicide was somebody who'd been um, psychologically disturbed for quite some time. Uh, and they feel that he actually stepped off the road and was run over by accident. There was no indications of court-martials or honour courts or um, disciplinary issues with the troops. And that astonished me because we all led to believe that if you train soldiers to kill in such an unmerciless fashion, eventually something breaks. Now, when those soldiers survived into the 
1960s and started collecting their pensions, it was very noticeable that none of them mentioned that they were in that forest. They only mentioned that they were in military service in the Luftwaffe for a set period. They could remember everything, but that six-month period in that forest was a complete gap. So they felt something. I'm sure they felt something. But at the time when they were doing it, they felt nothing at all other than we're doing the right job. Now, that puts an implication on, because if you... Can, I was just going to ask, what is the implication there, you think? You know. Well, if you're blooding soldiers very quickly, you've got veterans very quickly. And then you put... And then you don't have... You don't have that problem of the threshold of going over from having taken having killed somebody, you, you know, the process of leading troops to the killing point has always been a tetchy subject. Will they kill? You know, officers saying, well, at the last minute, will he fire his gun? We're going back to that slam marshal thing in the, at the, you know, at the end of the war where he was saying that maybe 25% or 40% of the soldiers didn't fire their guns. Well, I can assure you, <laughs> these boys were firing their guns because of the sheer amount of ammunition that they were expending. I, I, they were a battalion and they were, they were using as much ammunition, both bullets and hand grenades, as a regiment. So this was, they were not sparing on the, on the shooting. They were not sparing on the use of killing, uh, on the methods of killing. Now, if you take that back, what happens to those soldiers when they get into a fighting formation? Well, you see what happens. When the troops were retreating from the forest, they were fighting back. And not only simply fighting back, um, preventing the Russian offensive, they were actually fighting back, stealing the Russian guns and destroying Russian tanks. And they fought with, with uh, commitment. And when the warrant officers wrote their combat reports at the end of the period, there was no, well, no, no, the soldiers had no spine, they had no backbone, they refused to shoot and all the rest of it. It was all about how they'd, they'd kept the casualties low and they'd fought a hard fight. Yeah. So then uh, one thing I wanted to delve into was, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out how to put this in the right way so that people understand the question. Um, that are listening, I, I think you'll get it right away. But, you know, when I walk into a bookstore, let's say, uh, you'll see a World War II section, and then the section on the Holocaust is like completely separate. Um, and in a way, one of the things that I think your books are doing, especially Birds of Prey, is, you know, the two are connected. And in a way, I think that makes your book a little bit provocative for some people. I was never taught that the Holocaust was separate from the Second World War. Um, now, I, yeah, as you say, that might be controversial in some places because we, we're beginning to see the Holocaust as a completely separate subject. And to a certain extent, it is. But there are points when the military side of the Second World War meets the political side, meets the ideological side, meets the genocide, meets the Holocaust. And you cannot escape from those moments. Now, OK, the Luftwaffe destroyed nearly all of its files in April, May, 1945. The fi these files that made up this book had been kept in form of resin to make sure that they would be protected. 
I don't know who did that, but whoever did it was ex was hoping that this story was going to be told. And it's important to understand that that link between the Holocaust, you see, that. Let, let, let me dial it back. As Jews are escaping the Holocaust and trying to run for the forest and get away from from what's been from from what's happening in the camps so they maybe have broken out of a train they might have broken out of a ghetto wherever they've got to they've tried to run to the forest for protection and one one couple a daughter and a father they've been on the road for 45 days during the worst winter of the year of the war and they were caught by the SS, uh, by the Luftwaffe, and then were supposedly to be given to the SS, but the Luftwaffe commander decided to run a court-martial, and he said, you're guilty of trespass, and then had them executed as Jews. Now, that's a contribution, if you like, to the Holocaust, but it's not a direct Holocaust, because many Holocaust people say, well, you know, many escaped, many were caught, many were then killed. But what you're seeing is this deliberate attempt to prevent the forest becoming a sanctuary for runaway Jews. And if you see, if you look at some of the maps in the, in the book, the way I showed the, the, the geographical information system maps was to show that the troops were put into positions so that Jews could not escape. It was like a, it was like a, um, a trawler net picking up the fish. And it was set in that way so that as Jews came into the forest, they would be found. And they were found. Um, and in, you know, one month alone, they found 123 Jews. The interesting thing about that is the Luftwaffe then decided that they didn't want that record in their archive and wanted to censor the killing of the Jews, so it was reduced to six. And I have this very bizarre situation where the two commanders of the changeover of the battalion are arguing over how many Jews were killed or not killed, so it wouldn't go into the records of the Luftwaffe because the killings had taken place on German soil. Now, how unusual is that in terms of the Holocaust, that you've actually had German soldiers hunting Jews on German soil and killing them? It's very rare. So I, I understand your point of saying, you know, there's a difference between the Holocaust and, and the Second World War and the military side of things, but you come to a situation like this and it's, and it's pressing many buttons. It's saying, hey, that doesn't fit what we know, and that doesn't follow the narrative that we've agreed. And, you know, I come down to the Christop Christopher Browning thing about ordinary men. Now, ordinary men are groups of police soldiers um, lining up masses of Jews and killing them in large numbers. My ordinary soldiers in this book, Birds of Prey, are running around using military methods to kill Jews. Now, that has not been in the Holocaust narrative for a long, long time. And I'm suggesting that you have to put that back. 
because if one unit's doing it, then there's going to be two units doing it, then there's going to be more units doing it. And I don't believe that these two Luftwaffe battalions were the only ones who were doing this stuff. I know this is speculative, but what do you think, why was there seemingly no hesitation with these men that were working in the forest? I mean, they're they're slaughtering people. Why, why did they just go along with it? I've never really come across many German soldiers who refused to do any of the orders that were put before them. Um, when I'm the veterans I met, um, who were ordinary soldiers, I'm talking about now, ordinary soldiers and ordinary SS men, the ones I met, I often asked them, well, why didn't you just refuse? And it didn't come into their mind to refuse. See, I think you've got to look at the, the, the level of education and the kind of young men that we're dealing with here. Many of them have got really very good education by today's standards. You'd think, wow, he's stayed at school to 18. He's worked in the military justice department. He understands the laws of war. He understands that the pay book says, thou shalt not kill civilians, code seven of the German military code. And yet he's leading killing operations in this forest. Now, okay, how do you reconcile the two? And to a certain extent, I was inclined to think of um, what was the, I've forgotten the name of the book for a moment, um, Golding. Um, he, you know, in the in the jungle with Piggy and everybody. Um, I've forgotten the name of the... Of was the that man. Lord of the Flies? Lord of the Flies. There yes. you go. I, I completely forgot. But we, I was made to study Lord of the Flies when I was at school. It was regarded as something that we had to learn about the concrete, you know, in the middle of a concrete jungle, there's another jungle. And I, that came, when I stood before the graves of these Luftwaffe soldiers in Poland who'd been moved to a special uh, cemetery, and I stood there, it suddenly occurred to me that maybe this was a Lord of the Flies kind of situation. That once these units were out, once the little companies and sections were out on their lonesome uh, under the command of a warrant officer, um, it was easier to kill than not kill. And that once you've got into the frame of mind of killing, then you just carry on. It becomes routine. But I never at any stage came across any German soldiers who refused to kill. One thing I'm curious about, and I think my listeners want to hear more about this, how does the idea of of settler colonialism and uh, you know what's been called Liebenschrom in in German terms yeah, figure yeah. into this? Well, when I was writing Hitler's Bandit Hunters, Liebenschrom is large. <clears throat> it's large because what the Nazis are trying to do is to clear areas of um, Russian territory for German community, uh, German migrants to come out and live there and settle and create communities. Now, believe it or believe it not, there was actually a German town created in the Polish forest, which was protected by the Luftwaffe and um, ethnic Germans, I'm not entirely clear where they came from, were put into a community 
which was basically a Polish community that was dehoused. Now, that didn't come under, this is the interesting thing, that didn't come under Lebensraum simply because the area in question where the, the Polish forest was was regarded as Germany. So the area was came under German law. So although the territory was Poland, it had been annexed to Germany and they were putting a community in and that didn't fall under Lebensraum. So they were all part of German law, protected under German law, policed and, and so forth. Now, if you went to the next areas where the Germans were in occupation and down in Ukraine where Eric Koch was trying to build a new area, you're into this notion of Lebensraum where you would eventually clear total areas, including maybe even whole cities like Kiev, and literally fill them with Germans. Now... I'm not sure that that's altogether possible, but if you look at the recruiting um, books for young German soldiers and young SS men, the big offer was you will have lands in the East. So you're pushing a model which is German colonialism in Europe and Russia. That, that, that's very clear. You, you can understand that. The problem is it's not very practical because... No area is pacified long enough to put people in for that to work. So you can only do it on the very edges of the German board of the old German Eastern frontier, or maybe in the West where territories that which have once been German and then been taken into Belgium as reparations and then taken back again. Those might be areas where you could go back to migration of form, but you couldn't do resettlement of German people into the East very easily without having to suffer huge security demands. But that was the plan. I mean, you know, the German ambitions are way, way above what appears to be their capability and, of course, reality. Um, if, you, if you're in a situation where you're destroying an area of 3,000 kilometres and then you destroy it to the point where it's no longer habitable or or you can't grow vegetables and you can't raise cattle. Well, that's just a dead zone. In, for, in fact, they call them totem zonen, these dead zones where you couldn't put people anyway. So the idea that there would be this migration, there was some of it. Don't get me wrong, it was happening, but it wasn't happening in the numbers large enough to make a huge difference. Now, you would have thought, given the, the scale of movement in the East, that they would have taken people in the West who were being evacuated from the bombing and put them into communities in maybe even in this forest. But they didn't do that. Uh, the people of Arkham, my community, they mostly moved to places like Dresden and, and um, Magdeburg um, because you didn't want to put real Germans into the new areas. You'd put ethnic Germans into those areas, which is why you, you, you find there's one moment when a whole load of Romanians turn up. Some of the troops go into a Romanian SS battalion and then they put into a strategic hamlet in the Hochwald where the community's running and they're protected by Romanian soldiers like a militia. But those experiments were very small. You know, one thing I wanted to delve into was, since you've done so much research into the Holocaust and, and military activities 
of the Nazis at the time. You know, we've seen movies over the years that try to depict these things. You know, I, I know in another podcast, uh, you had mentioned the the great Sam Peckinpah movie, Cross of Iron. But how does how does what you've researched compare to the way it's depicted, I guess, in culture, whether it's in literature or film? Because I, I get the impression that your discoveries make everything we've seen in the movies and the books almost seem tame in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> that's a real, yeah, that's a nice question. How to how to uh, box me in on that one? Um, what I find interesting about your comment there is you go to films and the culture and the books and the stories and you've used Cross of Iron. Well, I'm going to just give you a little tale. I first met German soldiers, former veteran German soldiers, in 1971, and they were all members of the Africa Corps. And we were on holiday in Spain and the Germans would go there and there was this community and I got to know them and they'd give me a beer and I was tiny, 12, 13, and they gave me a beer and it was a lot of fun and everybody got on. And because the Africa Corps had a reputation of being nice guys, everybody said they're nice guys. About 10 years later, I was very tired walking through the streets of Saarbrücken and I sat in a cafe and as I turned around when the chap served me a drink at the back of the bar there was a picture of an SS general and I said oh that's so and so and because I knew who it was the barman asked me to come in and meet some of his locals and they were all SS men and I listened to them all telling me that if we'd all fought together with the German, with, with the Germans, the British, the Americans, we'd have kept the Bolsheviks out and there'd never be a Cold War. And there was all that story. And then when I first started my research, I met a very famous German soldier, working class man who wrote his memoirs called Henry Metalman. And Henry had been a tank man. And he started telling me a story which was so horrible I was astonished. And I said, that's not in your book. And he said, no, I wouldn't dare put it in my book. And I said, why not? And he said, because I don't want us to have the impression that we're beasts. And then a few years later, I met my neighbor um, who died in 2020. He was very helpful in instructing me how to use uh, German tactical methods and tactical signs on maps. And was this um, Heinrich Schreiber who you acknowledged Heinrich at the Schreiber, beginning of the yeah, book? He's, okay. he's a very nice man. Uh, sadly, he passed away um, from pneumonia, and he was—he's the last veteran that I've really spoken to. Um, and he started talking about things that he'd seen, and we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but there was. There was a sense there that what we were, what I was dealing with was more the reality because people were telling me these stories. And then I learned some more from some other veterans. And then eventually it came to the conclusion that, you know, if I watch Saving Private Ryan, I'm not going to learn anything about the Germans, even though a German soldier sticks a knife in one of the soldiers' chests. 
um, and that they fight to the very end and there's tiger tanks and bodies being chopped to pieces. That's not that that's not that's not the German army that I've come to understand. The problem with my knowledge of of the German armed forces is it puts me in a very dark place because the military historians do not want to engage. And as you noticed, um, some of the Holocaust historians think that, you know, I'm somehow watering down the story of the Holocaust by putting more emphasis on the Luftwaffe um, after the Luftwaffe have been regarded for so long as the golden boys of the German armed forces. It, 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 it's very difficult. I mean, cer certain books, I don't know if you've ever read W.G. Sebald's book, um, in one of the books, he talks about the bombing of Hamburg and how a lady uh, got on a train and got off at Munich and she had a suitcase. And in the suitcase was her child had been killed in the bombing. Now, what's that got to do with what I'm talking about? What I'm talking about here is that whole Second World War is such a scale of violence that anything that we see in culture, like films, is never really going to be able to reach it. You know, if you if you if you agreed with say um, Schindler's List, and you've got to that moment when you're in the showers, and there's that scary moment: is it gas or is it water? Even then, you still haven't got to the nature of the brutality of the Second World War. Yeah, because the nature of the violence is so extreme. I just don't think a lot of people can cope with how it would be properly portrayed if it was in film. I mean, you, you know, I, I watch over here in Germany, we have programs on Dresden and Stalingrad and, you know, the old veterans have all gone now, Stalingrad and Dresden is discussed as this dreadful, awful bombing and they try and recreate it in films and, romance and all the rest of it i just don't think you can very easily i i, I remember that um hamburg fireman who, who who explained how people were melting on the ground that scale of brutality and violence you can't really make that into some kind of um pleasant film so what what i think happens is you do have your saving private ryan or a film like dunkirk or whatever and it doesn't soften the blow. It tells a story which people need, I suppose, to explain their interpretation of the Second World War. I think in the long run, because we've avoided the truths, and I mean the real truth, the hard truth of the Second World War, I think it's had an impact on military history and it's turned military into military history into some kind of um, myths and the propagation of myth. And... I think in the long run, military history is on the downward slope because on the one hand, you have this idea that, you know, the British soldiers, the American soldiers, they're all the greatest. Um, I confronted something quite recently, which is how much had the Western soldiers been involved in rapes? It's, e it's easy to talk about the Soviet army doing the mass rapes coming into Berlin and, and the East, but what about the West? And as soon as you touch that subject, nobody wants to know. But there's a brutality there in the attacks on women, which had 
you'd seen in the East and was also happening in the West, and it had happened, and it and it and the undercurrents of those those stories still swirl around, but we don't tell the story. I know Miriam, can't remember her name, Godhart. She's written a very marvelous book on rapes in the West and how bad they were, and she mentioned numbers of fifteen thousand or so. And the, there was a, another sociologist who looked at the nature of violence against women in the Second World War in in nine, 1999 but as soon as 2001 occurred and 9-11 occurred he withdrew the book so we have to be careful i think of either going too far suggesting that it was quote the good war you know that is it studs turkle who came up with that yeah yeah and, and the idea of the reality of the war for me i understand that it doesn't make me very popular but I'd rather tell the reality of the war or at least explain the nature of the politics of violence that is underpinning the war than gloss it over with, you know, you can't tell that. You know, I'm not into this. You can't tell that story because it's far too brutal. You have to leave the reader to make the choice. If it's brutal and it's ugly, then maybe we shouldn't have war anymore, which is kind of my side of things, you know. I, I can appreciate that side of things um, for certain. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, a soldier that would say, well, you know, the reason we don't talk about that is because we didn't want to be seen as beasts. And it's interesting, uh, your book from, I, I guess, from a literary standpoint, I noticed little references to, um, you know, beasts and the bestial. Uh, for instance, the whole, I love how you have the whole section on Go Ring uh, that is called, I think the ogre of um, Ramen Ten, right? Um, was that deliberate on your part, sort of uh, dealing with this idea of the bestial throughout the book, almost thematically in some ways? Well, I don't know if you're aware of Michel Tournier, but he used the term um, something similar. Um, and he was very close. Uh, there was a book um, about that based on Michel Tournier's work. Um, Tournier put together a story which was incredibly close to mine. It was really that... If he'd have had the files, if he'd have had the records of the Luftwaffe troops and their behaviour in the forest, he would have been able to go there. But he could only go to Remington, which was Goering's um, special place. He called it, um, you know, uh, his hunting lodge. And, and And what... Michel Tournier was able to do was to suggest that Fravert, the, the chap I was telling you about earlier who created the honour code, he meets him and he talks about him and meeting old stags and old animals. That's where the beast lies. And Goering's attitude towards the beast, I mean, the funniest thing about Goering, and I still find this hilarious, is he had a morbid fear of snakes. So this great hero of the Third Reich wouldn't hunt in Beavisha Forest unless it was snowing. Because if it was in the winter and the snowing, all the adders in the forest would be uh, in hibernation. So his attitude towards the beast was there's a noble beast, which is the stag or the bison, but the, 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 the snake, that, that was an evil beast. <laughs> and if he'd have had his way, 
in one area, he would have taken out the beasts, put 300 hedgehogs in the forest, kill all the snakes, and then put the animals back. And you've got to think with Goering, you're dealing with a weird guy. So the whole attitude of the noble beast is, I mean, we're not here in some kind of Hobbesian savage man and all of that. We're dealing here with make-believe ideas of fantasy figures. It's like, you know, if we both now put on medieval clothes, run around shooting animals with 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 arrows, and then putting them up on the wall, we would be close to Goering's thinking. <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it it sounds irrational, but that's his nation of the beast. It's not what we understand the beast versus the human. Barbara yeah, I, I was going to say, not not to interrupt you, but it, it, I, I think it's hard to understand someone like Goering um, from our perspective, because I, I think there's, with a lot of these Nazis, there's this deep sort of romanticism that they hold to that I think is very foreign to us. Well, he's, he, he's, he's a Renaissance man with the old German romanticism lodged in there which comes from, you know, the period of Caspar Friedrich Davids and, and all of those and, and, and that kind of genre and culture. But at the same time, he's got this idea that national socialism is going to be the new way. In addition, you'd think, why is this highly intelligent individual going down the route of believing that the Jews look like elk? So he would describe Jews like animals, like elk. They all look like elk because they've got strange faces and strange noses. And, you you know, when you first read that kind of thing, you look and you think, well, he's off his trolley. You know, he's gone a bit wild. But actually what you realise is he's using hunting tropes to attack the Jews while at the same time staying within the ideology. So you see the logic. You don't think it's logical at first, and then suddenly you realise the logic because it fits the message, and that's the national message, which is, you know, we're Germans, we're noble hunters, doing noble things, and the Jew doesn't fit. I, that's a, you know, today we would find that illogical to, exp, you know, compare human beings to an animal, Um but that was the nature of things in the national in the national socialist side. I mean, if you looked at the SS, they create they're, they're creating another logic for the Jew, and saying the Jew is this and the Jew is that, and and creating these horrible books to show that the Jews were um, there to um, ruin and be the cancer in the in the body politic of the German society. Yeah, I mean, there was that whole. I remember there was a, a documentary I was shooting my sociology class and it was an old nazi documentary i think it was called the eternal jew we we were learning about propaganda yeah and i they literally were portraying jews as being vermin rats you know yes so they all have their own I, i mean the incredible thing is they all have this kind of um vocabulary for describing lexicons of of how to deal with all of these different races and of course they do the same with with the slavs with the Sinta Romana, with with black soldiers from the from uh, from black people who've been 
um, brought over from the Herrero Wars or from the time of the um, French occupation. They went out of their way to, you know, um, attack people with the most incredible analogies. So then uh, before we close out, I know we don't have to get into this since I know that you're working on a book about it, but you you had mentioned earlier, you know, the U.S. sort of taking some of these ideas uh, from from the uh, Nazi activities in the forests in Poland and uh, utilizing that in, in Korea and uh, Vietnam. Could you talk a little bit about that at least? Um, I, I know maybe just a preview of the upcoming book. Okay. Well, what I discovered in my research, because I didn't end my research in 1945 and I went all the way through, um, I found an awful lot of evidence of where the Americans in particular had started to read certain files and started protecting certain individuals. Um, they, For instance, they protected Baxalevsky, who was the chief of SS operations, and they protected him for a certain amount of evidence, and they also protected a lot of the officers who'd been around him, like Heinz Reinefarth, who'd, who'd actually put Polish people into a church in Warsaw and burnt them alive. The Americans kept these guys alive, and not only did they keep them alive and protect them against Polish um, extradition, but they then started to use them for studies. Then in 1948, there was something called the Foreign Military Study Program when the German soldiers were used to create reports. And all of these reports were put together with the SS, plus certain groups that were emigres from the Soviet Union, like the Ukrainians, um, started to put together studies of the war, Ukrainian nationalism, um, Belarusian nationalism, and so forth. And round about the time of the Korean War, the Americans were studying the idea of partisan war, which is basically suggesting that they were using a study made by the British in 1950 to apply to operations in the Korean War to fight against communist insurrection. Now, Somewhere along the line, that went off the rails because it failed in Korea. And as they were watching DMBM Fu unfold in, in um, Vietnam, they started to study the way the Soviet partisans had been attacked and confronted by the Germans by using all the German files that they'd captured after the end of the war. So the Americans had whatever it was, 60 tons of archives, which went to the National Archives in, in Maryland or wherever. And they started to study these things. And there was a group of historians, about 12 of them, I think. Um, and their aim was, one of them was a guy called Robert Armstrong, who was famous for writing studies of Ukrainian culture and history. Um, and they started to study the way the Soviets had been countered by the German armed forces. And in 1955, a first book was produced by the Center of Military History on the Soviet partisan using the German records. Then they worked on this Soviet partisan book, which was funded by the Department of Defense. 
Now, within a year of that work being done, McNamara is recommended in the introduction of body counts, which, of course, we know the body counts were being used by the SS in their killing operations in Bandamikampfung in the occupied areas of Russia and Yugoslavia. So you, you knew there was the, that there's the track record, and it was very easy then to put it all together, and you could see what was happening now. So you had the United States Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. His name comes up. Okay. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things in all of this was a little while later, I spoke to an American general who'd served in um, Vietnam and Laos. And he was very much um, supportive of Hitler's bandit hunters. And he came to me one night and said, um, while we were on a, um, a conference, he said, what you're saying is very much what we did in Vietnam. And he said, I will get you a copy of the My Lai Massacre, and I want you to look at it and start comparing it. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but in the introduction, I mentioned it in Birds of Prey. Now, that got me turned down by 18 American publishers. Really? <laughs> yep. And one American scholar who I happen to know, who's a big name, said it was all lies and tosh. Uh, he said the American army didn't behave like that in Vietnam. My argument is the SS wouldn't have done a me lie because it was too disorganised. Um, now, Obviously, there's been incidents ever since um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places. And to a certain extent, <clears throat> this nature of this kind of warfare leads to atrocities, even when you try to play fair. Now, I know that in, in 2005 or six, whenever it was, civil affairs officers were going with the American army with rules of engagement with JAG officers to control behavior. The problem is it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, soldiers with guns are always going to be on edge. It's the way they're trained. It happened to the soldiers in Luftwaffe in the forest. I don't blame ordinary soldiers for being whatever word is best, trigger happy or what whatever. I think that's your first nature. It's not that soldiers go to war to die. Soldiers go to war to survive. This idea that soldiers go to war to die is nonsense. Ordinary soldiers go to war to survive and win. And what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean they go to war to survive? Like, like for a lay audience, what do you mean by that? See it through. They don't want to, they don't want to be a casualty in a record. They, I, I, I'm not aware. And, I come from a long family of soldiers, many of whom had high awards for bravery and fighting in special forces, one of them Chindit soldier. Um, they fight to win, they're hard fighters, but they don't want to they don't want to be casualty on a casualty list. They want to survive the war. Now many in military history, like, and I have to say it, Joanna Burke, she said soldiers go to war to die and fight and kill. They don't. They go to war to survive. Somewhere along the way in the survival process, they will kill. That's the nature of ordinary soldiers. 
They will kill, but it's part of the survival process. And if it means killing defenseless people to get through this, they will do it. Now, that puts a huge burden on historians and scholars to understand that process, because initially you think that's fairly brutal, but actually it's natural. And so, you know, I'm not saying that Lieutenant Calais um, is, deserves a pass because he's trying to survive and, and all the rest of it. Don't get, that, that's not what I'm talking about. When a soldier, an ordinary soldier, I'm not a sergeant, not a lieutenant, when an ordinary soldier has a gun and he's forced to kill, he will kill. Men who've got the opportunity to stand back like officers and senior sergeants, they have much more responsibility for what they're doing. And those are the ones that I'm pretty much, that's, those were the people that I was writing about in the book because there's a burden on them. Um, and they will act what they think is best. And this is why I'm always concerned about how you have rules of engagement. In the German army, there was this idea um, that the soldier would be led by a, a, an NCO who could show his initiative. That idea was falsely created into something called Auftrags Tactic, and now soldiers call it, modern European soldiers and American soldiers call it Mission Command. So it, it's all based on rubbish. The idea is that somehow junior officers and junior NCOs will lead men with initiative to get the, the mission done. Well, if you give unlimited control to a sergeant or a young officer, you'll have me lies. It happens. You can't stop it. So there has to be a control in war. And in, in, and and this is the, one of the reasons why I've been writing the way I do about the ordinary soldiers because you can manipulate some so young soldiers like the Luftwaffe did to get the nature of the results you want, and it's very very easy. Just closing out here, one thing we didn't mention is that you know ultimately your book uh, could be categorized as a sort of micro history. You're dealing specifically with these events in the forest in Poland. Um, what is the value of taking a micro history approach to looking at, you know, history more broadly? Um, for for people that don't know, like what what do you think is beneficial to taking that micro history approach at times? Well, uh, there's two there's two answers to this. Do we have time? Okay, so the first one is, and it's the most logical. Um, as I mentioned before, the Luftwaffe destroyed their archive. So if I wanted, or anybody who wants to write a proper history of the Luftwaffe, the problem is they haven't got the archive papers to write. So they've only got memories and memoirs, and most of those are rubbish anyway. So in my case, I had files of troops on the ground and their diaries. So I built the picture up from there. And what I did then to make the story meaningful was to add why were they there, what were they trying to do, when were they trying to do it, and how were they going to do it. And once you start answering those questions, you build an architecture, you know, a structure, and you get to the top because the only way you can explain what those guys are doing there is by saying this is Goering's policy 
for a greater Germanic forest and a greater German border, which goes into the east and protects the nature of the of the future German state. Yeah. Now, the other reason why you go into microhistory is it's the only way you're going to see people in detail. Now, if you remember in Christopher Browning, he was looking at studies that were made 25 years after the war. So when the police were interrogating these policemen who committed the murders, it was all based on memory. Now, in my case, all of the reports were filed within 24 hours of the incident. There was no interface from another organisation, from another society, from another government, from another republic. It was reports written at the time by the soldiers. And what I had to do to make that come alive, because of the nature of the complexity involved, we used geographical information systems to map the movements and the actions of the troops and literally put them back to life again. So in a sense, the micro history was enabling me to walk beside the German soldiers and follow them into ambushes and killing actions and see them do it bit by bit. And in that way, I was able to understand and learn the nature of the German soldier. And the culture, more importantly for me as a, now a cultural historian, is the culture of the German soldier and what was making him tick and why he was doing it. And once you piece all that together and you could identify certain people like Siegfried Adams, I got on a train and I went to Wuppertal and I went to see where he lived. I went and even followed his routine of how he went to work in the morning before he became a soldier in the Luftwaffe. Now, you might think that's crazy, um, but it was the way I, it was the only way I could engage with Siegfried Adams and try and understand how this young man who's got a job as a legal clerk in Wuppertal suddenly ends up a killer in a forest in Poland. Yeah. So, in conclusion, I mean, we've been talking for uh, about an hour and a half now, and I, I just wanted to give you room to to answer the question I always ask at the end of the show, which is, uh, what do you hope listeners get out of this conversation and also the book Birds of Prey? I mean, for me, something that I get out of Birds of Prey, um, yeah, it's it's a hard book to read at times because you're dealing with very, very dark subject matter, and uh, I, I think it shows the brutality of of warfare you know, and the the tragedy of war in a lot of ways. So for me, that's what that's part of what I got out of the book. I also got a better understanding of how these military operations worked and how they fit into a, a broader history of that era with Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. But what do you hope my listeners get out of the conversation? What do you hope they get out of the book? That's That's what I got out of it. But what do you want them to get out of it? I think I want people to understand that the nature of national socialism isn't, you know, a simple divide between the SS putting people in concentration camps and the German soldiers fighting at Stalingrad or wherever, that there's a more complex um, cultural process having taken place and giving people a glimpse of what that looked like on a daily basis. Now, that might sound quite a, uh, a big deal, but 
before before that book came out, before I came with those findings, generally speaking, you would find a middle-class officer telling the story of what it was like to fight in Stalingrad. You very rarely can pick up a book about an ordinary German soldier who's contributing to Hitler's Holocaust. And so what I'm hoping is that people will see how ordinary folk, ordinary men, are taken out of their, if you like, the most one of the most industrial societies in the world, put into a primeval existence and pushed to do uh, commit actions which are the most bestial and to show that that little, that little thread where, you know, at the end of the Second World War, Allied interrogators said there's a thin divide between civilization and the primitive. But they would never explain what it was because they would always go back to, well, you know, the Jews that were killed in the concentration camps, the British soldiers who were put up against a wall and shot in Dunkirk. That that those were the kind of stories they had. What I'm showing here is that's what actually happened, that you took men from a um, a fairly privileged industrial society, you put them into a primitive world and you turn them into some form of barbarian. I mean, there's no real word that can describe what a bunch of these soldiers look must have looked like to that emaciated lady who's lying in the forest and they come along, see her and kill her. I mean, that to me in itself is the most barbaric moment. And it took a week and that's what I want people to realise. This isn't massive propaganda, um, you know, processing, brainwashing, learning how to kill. The guys have gone out and they've killed <laughs> with no mercy. No one's showing any mercy here. And I think people will maybe appreciate a little bit better that when they're reading some of these hard history books like Christopher Browning or... Daniel Jonah Goldhagen's Willing Executioners, that the story that they were telling goes so far, but there's actually more, and that we have to tell the story of what it was like. Uh, and I think there's a duty on academic historians to go into the kind of detail that I've gone into. I don't want to upset my readers. Uh, it's not the game. I, I'm not here to... to make a controversy about Luftwaffe troops. I want people to see the reality of the Second World War as it was being fought by the Germans. I, I have to ask, too, I promise this will be the last question, but... Um, Mind? I like being with you. Well, the the thing that gets me, um, and you had mentioned national socialism and, and fascism as ideologies, and one thing that I think people have trouble wrapping their head around, and maybe you would have insight into this, uh, and it's one of the things I found interesting about the book, especially when you talk about the code of the hunt and and Goring's sort of beliefs. I think when we talk about national socialism and fascism, uh, people often don't really have a firm definition or idea of what it means. You know, some people view it as you know this um, extreme form of anti-communism or an extreme form of anti-Semitism, but they don't really have like the a, a clear working definition. So, I guess what how would you define uh, the, the Nazi ideology and the fascist ideology? I think 
definition wise you i'm i'm probably not the the best person to answer that question i don't mean that in a nasty way it's just that i see different versions and if i sat with you now for another hour i might well get through six of them because there's the ss version of national socialism there's hitler's version of national socialism there's Goering, and they all had these different versions the problem is they were all running around without any kind of central control because if you went back to the very source of what national socialism was in Hitler's mind, it's a form of social Darwinism where there's no rules, that it is survival of the fittest. Might makes right. Yeah. Yeah. And everything is in the same, is in constant conflict with each other. And, and you're saying, yes, what you're saying is correct. Might is right. But there's another thing. And we've probably heard the words in recent times from British and American politicians that somehow Germany is going to be great again or the future is rosy. You know, as soon as some politician starts, starts talking about the future, you know you've got a problem because it's scary stuff. Because you're not dealing with the politics, you're dealing with what might happen tomorrow. And we all know that tomorrow never comes. But the promise is constant. Now, I know the story that you you just mentioned, which is somehow the, the the right-wing fascist is somehow an extension of the communist in a fun, a funny kind of extremist sort of way. But I have never come across a fascist capable of understanding the dialectic. And the dialectic will rip any fascist to pieces because mostly the dialectic is based on fact and organisation and thinking and structure and sound sound thought processes. But the fascist won't have that. He will have vague images of the future, um, a, a reinterpretation of the past. He'll rely on things like social Darwinism to explain why everybody is really a beast. Yeah, I, I was going to say, too, the other thing is, you know, it seems like a lot of fascists and, and Nazis, they don't want to necessarily always be thinking, you know, they believe very much in, in the man of action, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's the point. It, 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 if you look at the literature, Nazi literature, it's very hard. I mean, okay. Heidegger wrote his, his works. Um, and Hannah Arendt was his student for a while. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is you're not really looking at very much intellectual study. It's like, Many of the books that I've come across, when you read them, you think, well, this is like the corner shop theories, the the man in the corner shop who tells you in the morning it's going to rain and then it's this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And the Nazi books are like that, and Nazi philosophy is like that. It's like when you're reading Himmler's works. You know, he goes into great intellectual, what he thinks is an intellectual debate over the SS being an anti-Bolshevik organisation. Well, you know, when you read it in more detail, he hasn't got a clue what a Bolshevik is. He has got absolutely no idea whatsoever, but he thinks he knows what it is. And and I will go back again. If you have any of the basic learning of the dialectic and you have ideas of how historiography works and all of those processes, you can't possibly be a, a Nazi because it's far too rational. You know, people say to me, why would you never be a Nazi? I said, because it's just irrational. I, I could, how would I, how would it ever happen to me? You, you'd have to, you have to really think in a place which is distorted 
and you have to think irrationally. And, and that's been a, a lot of my concern in the past. Well, why was I dealing with such strange behavior? Because when you read it, it's so irrational. You know, why would you wait, lay waste to a whole area if, you're, if your troops are hungry? Surely you take the food and you give it to the troops. No, you destroy it. And you're thinking, well, that's a wild logic. That, 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 that's, that's some kind of madness. And, and then later, of course, if you, you know, here, here's one which I always love. Some historians talk about Ger, um, Hitler and the civil servants because the civil servants said there's such a thing as working towards the Fuhrer, which basically meant you had to make your work work towards that great goal, even though you might be a rational man. Uh, really? Really, I just think it's an excuse to get to get the money, to get the loot, and to have the good stuff and the good life. Because if you played along with Hitler and the gang, you made money. And, and that's the point to a lot of this. If you if you go along with it, if you do what they say, I guess it's the same like Trump and Johnson. If you go along with them and you do what they say, you get well rewarded. Yeah. So I've never ever thought there was anything really rational about the fascists. Maybe, maybe Mussolini had a few ideas, but even then, it all seems very, very. Well, it's it's all based in not not to interrupt you, but it's all based in. I think it's a it's a belief system that is is deeply irrational, often very romanticist, and I I think in a way that they almost have like a um like a supernatural way of thinking like um yes. you know it's it's not based in the sort of empiricist worldview or anything that comes out of the enlightenment yeah well, one of one one of the one of my um relatives a great uncle who was um very political in the past uh, he once said to me you're dealing with the nazis you're dealing with to a certain extent middle class foibles and and fears um, and when you're dealing with middle-class fears and foibles, there's no rationality to it. They will follow. They will follow a pattern which is illogical, but it suits their purpose. It's heavily materialistic. Not coming from a, a middle-class background, but they're an academic. Therefore, I've entered the middle-class world. I I can understand it, but. I find a lot of the ideas of the middle class process very, very close to what you see with some of the some of the Nazi processes, you know, about careerism, professionalism, the, these ideas that you're going to have to be on the top. And if you kill all the opposition, that's great. I doesn't really suit me, but I can understand perhaps why it happens in society that people do this. I've never wanted to do it myself, but, you know. Hey, <laughs> I'm not a fascist. <laughs> well, Dr. Philip Blood, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. I hope everyone checks out the book, Birds of Prey. And uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? I know you're on social media. How can they get your books? Um, well, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Academia EDU and I've joined Fallout on Substack. And um, we put content there. Was my friends and colleagues, we're, 
We're about to do a study of an SS officer, very famous one for releasing in February for my followers. Um, my books are through Columbia University Press because the German publisher has a relationship with Columbia and also with Amazon. Um, I'm not sure how else I would say where I, where where the books are sold. I'm, I'm high street shops. <laughs> I don't get to America, unfortunately. I do not get to America anymore, so I don't. Know. <laughs> I do know Columbia University Press has sponsored the book, and they were happy with it. So, well, thank you again, Doctor Philip Blood. Thank you very much, JG. It's been great. <laughs> And you've got some demanding questions. <laughs> well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Philip W. Blood, author of Birds of Prey, Hitler's Luftwaffe, Ordinary Soldiers, and the Holocaust in Poland. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike you to parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.